Welcome to another edition of An Artist Actual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill. And I'm your co-host for today, Veronica A. Carr. I'm also the uh, editor and associate producer of this lovely podcast. And today we are talking to two exciting people that are helping to make America a better place. We're talking to Dr. Sabia Prince and... We're also talking to Jad Edlebi. And today we're going to have an unusual conversation because it's marrying the historic past with today's present issues with COVID-19, access to capital, and technology. Yes, technology. I'm so excited that Dr. Prince could get her colleague Jad, who is the GIS specialist, to come on board on his day off to drop some knowledge about the gift that he brings to the table every day. So we thank you, thank you, thank you both. Dr. Sabia Prince is the founder, the founder, director of Anthrodocs. Yes, catchy name. I love that Anthrodocs, we love that. A qualitative research firm based in Washington, D.C., an urban anthropologist and an artist. Her books include Constructing, Belonging, African American Gentrification in Washington, D.C., and Capital Dilemma, co-edited with Derek Hira. Prince's paintings have been exhibited in Washington, D.C., at the Anacostia Art Center, the Hill Center, Zenith Gallery, and through the Petworth Artist Collaborative. Her media experiences include MSNBC, NPR, Al Jazeera English, Sirius XM, WOL, WPFW, and WYPR. All a mouthful. Wow. But this woman <laughs> is worth the listen to all of that. She is passionate. She is talented. She's creative. She's intellectual. But more importantly, she's my friend. So at the end of the day, I'm very impressed with all the skill sets. But the most significant skill set is I can call her a friend. And I've been to her lovely home. And I've looked at some of those fabulous books that are in the background. Okay, Veronica, <laughs> talk about Jad. <laughs> and I will introduce Jad Ed Levy. He's the GIS Specialist for National Community Reinvestment Coalition, NCRC. You can visit their website at ncrc.org. Jad is originally from New York City, and prior to joining NCRC, he worked as a mapping technician to cruise automation in San Francisco, digitizing interactive environments for autonomous vehicles. He's also held various GIS-focused internships within the New York State's Attorney's Office, Department of Environmental Conservation, and Office of Mental Health, and he received his master's degree in urban and regional planning and a supplemental graduate certificate in geographic information systems and spatial analysis from the University of Albany. And he also received his bachelor's degree in environmental science with a concentration of economics and atmospheric science from the same institution. So yes, but also another mouthful. That is impressive. I don't know. I don't know. We can hang with these folks. I mean, they're, <laughs> on, a right whole, they're on a whole different level. If I told them, we, we, we roll in. We roll in a, a simplistic material culture world. So with, with that said, I, I got to quickly give a shout out to Dr. Prince is being acknowledged in the New York Times online. You, you know, it just seems like the hits keep rolling. I highly suggest any of our listeners who visit the New York Times online and read the 100 Black-Owned Businesses You'll Love and go to the Art Design and More category to learn more about Anthrodox. Thank you so much. Oh, my, my pleasure. And a shameless plug, we just got designated as 2021 Baltimore City Historical Society History Honors History yeah, Scholars Awards. For the Old West Baltimore book. Congratulations, I saw that. So thank you, thank you. So I got to pat myself on the back and pat you on the back <laughs> as well. So let, let's get down to business. Really cool. Thank you. 
In preparing for this, we uncovered something in our archive that we've really overlooked for years. We have probably one of the largest collections of the Cortez W. Peters Business School in the country. We have diplomas, we have letters, we have homework assignments, textbooks. And of course, class photographs done by noted African-American photographer Paul Henderson. And his work is documented at the Center for Maryland History and Culture. But more importantly, Cortez W. Peters graduated from the Dunbar High School in D.C. in the early 20s. And by 1926, he's a typing demonstrator for Underwood. Let me say that again. He's a typing demonstrator for Underwood typewriter. So for any of you typewriting enthusiasts out there who know the Underwood model, it's one of the most actually recognized and used models in the country when it comes to typewriters. They produce typewriters from the early 1900s up until the 1960s and it becomes the typewriter of choice for you know business schools in this case, secretaries, journalists, writers, anybody who had a typewriter more than likely had an Underwood. And Sabia, you're old enough, uh, Dr. Prince, you're old enough, you may have used an Underwood at some point <laughs> in your early career. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Well, I certainly am a typist. I mean, my mother, who graduated from Dunbar High School in Washington, D.C. in 1947, made sure that I knew how to type. So I can type over 100 words per minute. Oh, that's impressive. Now, Jad, can you hit the keys or not really? So I guess I share the glory of of being written in the typewriter world. But I I can definitely say I, I practiced a good amount on a digital keyboard with I'm ashamed to say that I don't type anymore, but I do have a trusted sidekick that does all the typing. <laughs> um, so, on back to the serious note, in 1934 in D.C., Cortez W. Peters establishes the Negro Business School. And they are, as a matter of fact, the date is October the 15th, 1934 in Washington, D.C. And they really wanted to give youth of the nation an opportunity to prepare for business and become more useful and contributing citizens. And the first school was located at 1314 U Street. Oh, my God. Jad and Sabia, is this right up your alley in the wheelhouse or what? It's remarkable. This, this is the target area. Yeah. Right. It, it is. And so by 1935, he hooks up with his esteemed colleague, Walter Thomas Dixon, and they established one in Old West Baltimore. And in Baltimore, they moved to three different locations. They they are on Gold Street, Druid Hill, and, and Pennsylvania Avenue, Avenue, which are all within the boundaries of the, the National Historic Register District. And of course, you know, just like when you ask, you know, if someone went to historic, you know, Douglas High School, if you ask who, you know, who went to Cortez W. Peters Business School, someone knows an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister, a mother in some cases. Right. It, it, it played a big role in the Black community in Baltimore, in D.C. Now, of course, in D.C. you have Howard, and you have the Miners Teachers College. You also have, you have several other entities that Blacks can get advanced degrees in, but the Cortez W. Peters played a tremendous impact in making us successful. And then by 38, they go across the country to Chicago to set up the third and final one. So we wanted to start off by dropping this knowledge on you. When I was wrapping this up, I was just trying to say that this business is under-recognized undervalued but as you talk to elders in the community they rest assured will tell you how much it meant to get a job at the social security administration through the job placement from the cortez peters business school or working for some other aspect of the government or at a college and you could always get a referral or reference letter of some kind from the dean of the and co-founder of the baltimore branch so the school is one of those stories that could be turned into a much larger effort 
in the future. And of course, it has geographical spatial components as well, Jad. So. <laughs> so why don't we segue to the project that you, Sabia, and you, Jad, did for the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. Sure. Well, I, I really want to begin by well, thanking you guys for having us. I mean, this is just such a wonderful discussion. I'm so happy that Jad's here. And we also have to really big up Jason Richardson and Bruce Mitchell for our partners on the team. They're not here now. Jason's the director of research, and um, Bruce is a senior researcher there. And we just, the four of us, really worked closely together. And they got in touch with me and asked me as an anthropologist to come on board because they usually do statistical kind of work. And my stuff is more qualitative where I just like to, you know, talk with people. And and so that's how I got involved. You know, and I'm sure Jack can say more, but it's funded by American Express and the Kresge Foundation. And the goal was to look at Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and really highlight culturally significant businesses and how they were impacted by the virus. And interestingly, the funders were not sure even what culturally significant businesses even meant. So that was part of the job too, was that we had to define that, you know, we had to think about that and have conversations with that, which we did with each other and with the business owners. And, you know, I consulted my, you know, background as an anthropologist and, you know, and I think what the result is, is just a wonderful, beautiful report that's accessible to so many people and will really show, uh, number one, for Baltimore, just the lively, rich history. I mean, we're D.C.-based, so we already knew a little bit about D.C. I think the Baltimore piece, you guys being, you know, Baltimoreans, that was the part that was just so exciting as well as, you know, it was a challenge to get people to participate. You yeah. guys were helping. Right. We had some other contacts there. But what would you say some of the takeaways uh, were for you, Jack, from the experience? So I guess I was very surprised at how powerful the visualization came out to be. Uh, more than what we originally perceived. Much of that came from the interviews that Sabia had co- conducted with the business owners, which kind of gave the project a much-needed insight on local impacts. And, you know, we were so thrilled to have worked with Sevilla on this report. It would not have been possible without our efforts, especially on interviewing the owners. We're also grateful for the owners to have shared their stories and hope that this project can bring in the spotlight. Let, let me ask you this. You, you talked about that you didn't have a lot of hope for. What did you base your not having a lot of hope for um, before you hooked up with Sevilla and got to learn more about Baltimore and the in the rich business background? Well, it was really the connections. I don't say we didn't have any hope. It really was uh, just how networking was really a big factor in this project and how trust was very much key to engage with these business owners, especially those in the neighborhoods that were previously impacted by many different scenarios that we highlighted in the visualization, especially. We want somebody to have that warmth, that, that really, really trusting value and would actually bring a lot of intel uh, and a lot of connections. Uh, somebody who's already well established in the region. And Bia was just uh, really, really great with that. She fits that role so perfectly and we we're just so glad to have her with us. And, you, you know, to, to dovetail on that, when it comes to getting African-Americans or people of African descent to talk about their family history, their business history, their church, their background, it's like being a dentist or an oral surgeon trying to perform wisdom tooth surgery. <laughs> so many of us 
just are not willing to share. We had numerous impediments because there's that, but you know, I mean, the pandemic was a big one. Right. You know? right. Initially, this was all going to be face to face. I mean, I was going to be going to people's businesses, which kind of didn't make sense because it was during the pandemic and we kind of knew that, but that was kind of in our minds what we were going to initially do. And then we had to immediately pivot and just do everything remotely. But you know, then the other piece is you're asking people questions about their business finances. So let's be real. You know, not everyone wants to be transparent with that. And, and that's understandable. I mean, I think that's a challenge with social science research, period. Yes. You know, sometimes you have to be intrusive. You know, the same thing perhaps for journalists is that, you know, you have to be intrusive sometimes. The information is important. So basically you need to get people to kind of buy in. And recognize that yeah it is important so i do want to participate i want to be upfront with you it's not going to be useful if i'm not you know clear cut etc but there definitely were people who i called them numerous times i know they got my emails messages. <laughs> <laughs> but once i had a person hang up on me and they first they said that they were going to talk to me and then i called them once and i did <laughs> up and I got a click and I said oh maybe this is a mistake so I called again and I got the same thing and I said okay dokie I won't be calling you again the other thing is and I'm not defending them because we've been doing oral history for well over 20 years I, we have all kinds of oral history nightmares and success stories but if you think about how black folk have been mistreated by the media okay by the government by the IRS by the financial institutions where they're predatory lenders and and also just the lack of access to technical assistance to run uh, or develop your business. And the small business organizations have not really done a good job of reaching the grassroots community people that are trying to develop and run their businesses. So here you come <laughs> wanting to pry all up in their business and yep. it's, it's not gonna happen. I feel that and I'm totally with that, you know? I, I just completely respect it. I mean, I would've, prefer you just tell me that rather than hang up on me, but right. that's your prerogative. Right, well. right, right. You know, I mean, we have to be respectful, and that's a part of really the ethics of being an anthropologist is, um, and having IRB training and meeting certain requirements, and that is you have to be respectful. You're not entitled to anyone's time or information. Right, say that again, say that again. That's critical. Please say that again. <laughs> you are not entitled to anyone's time or information. So I, you know, I try to always move with integrity and we have consent forms That's and right. you know, get people's permission and, you know, and you're always transparent, but, you know, hopefully you get a buy-in where people understand that this is a part of the flow of information. This is how we learn things. This is how scholars work, you know, so if you don't talk to us, you know, the information doesn't get there and I'm asking you to talk to me because... I value what you have to say, and I would like you to share that with me under whatever circumstances you feel comfortable with. And if you don't want to talk to me, you know, that's all good as well. Right, you know, right. And, and thank you. And Jed, with your component, how do you think this project would have worked if you did not bring your expertise to the table? Well, actually, at first I have I'm, a I'm basic sorry, excuse question. Me, excuse me. <laughs> Explain for our listeners what GIS is in the layman's terms. Thank you. Long, it's uh, geographic information systems, or uh, I'd like to just call it digital mapping. I I'm hoping other other folks who are more <laughs> who have sh who share more expertise than I do don't think I'm like destroying the entire term by saying digital <laughs> mapping. But that's essentially what. <laughs> 
that's essentially what it what it comes down to, and it's basically a, a way of uh, visualizing data in a, in a dynamic uh, and intuitive way that engages an audience much more. And right now, it appears to be on the uptick where all kinds of uh, organizations are employing or consulting with GIS specialists to bring that component to the table in their uh, historic endeavors. Would you agree? I'd say so. Yeah, I would. I would say that you know, having having a spatial factor to a lot of things kind of brings familiarity to a lot of those who may see this as more distant than they would think without the touch of, of geography. And we first became aware of this in 2018. 2018, yeah. We were consulting with the National Park Service uh, on a plantation in Maryland in Towson called the Hampton Plantation. And uh, one part of my job actually was to work on a team of um, people that were actually employing ArcGIS trying to actually map out not only the physical boundaries of this plantation, but also where the descendants of the enslaved from the plantation went to kind of get an idea of um, this footprint of not only where oh, wow. did the enslaved move to, but where did their descendants move? And in some cases, they didn't move too far. And so now, in almost anything that we do, we want to be able to employ this GIS because it just adds such a in my mind, a, a necessary component that gives the end user a better understanding of what was, what is, and what could be. As I know, and I don't know if you guys got a chance to see um, both of them that Jack created, one for Baltimore and one for D.C., he is so modest. Those things are phenomenal. They are. Yeah, they are. They are. They are. That's why we were so delighted to have to have him here, especially on his vacation. And you're you're at a secret cafe in hot <laughs> downtown hideaway. New York. Uh, you know, we're, we're honored. We're we're, we're 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 so blessed that that you could uh, grace us with, with this because this is a hot. It's, it's, it's up and coming. It's sexy. It's where we are. And I think more, like I said, more and more groups are going to want to have this kind of component in projects. Yes. And, you know, this is a pilot study. So, you know, we're very, you know, heartened um, and, you know, interested to see where it's going to go and whether or not the funder is going to either uh, engage us to do a larger thing or if other people are going to attempt to replicate this in other parts of the country and indeed in other parts of the world. Well, I think, again, with technology and everything being global now, I could see that this could be replicated in another part of the world. Sabia, working with JAD and the organization, does it have Anthrodocs excited about um, trying to do more of this with different organizations around the country? Or where do you see this project leading itself to get Anthrodocs to move to? Well, you know, that would be great, you know, if I could partner with other organizations. I have to say that, you know, there's a limit to how much you can do, you know, but I've been able to partner with other people and bring in other anthropologists when I have larger projects. So I would love that, but really more to the point, I would love to continue working with NCRC and really try to build out this project and see if we can apply it to other places because one of the interesting things that we were able to do is to come up with these six criteria for um, what a culturally significant business is. Could you quick, could, could you quickly run through those six for us? Those are location. Right. You know, so that was why, you know, you know, we consulted with you. You were very helpful for us to think about West Baltimore and old West Baltimore. So 
within place is cultural significance, right? So right. you choose a place that's significant in and of itself, and then you go on and look into the businesses. So certainly location was one. Context was another one. Um, for African Americans, the political and the economic context are so important. You can't separate that out from the experience of people trying to run businesses, right? Because yeah. we've had a lot of things against us. We've had, you know, a lot of challenges, and we've been have our businesses attacked, etc. As we've talked about, so there's always been this pressure, you know. So you can't decontextualize. As an anthropologist, that's a key part of our methodology and our, our analytical approach is to always put things within their context. I like that. The context is political, it's historical, it's economic, it could be environmental, many, many factors, but you never decontextualize anything. The particular products are being sold, that certainly relates to significance, right? I mean, there's some things that are so specific to African Americans, whether it's our hair care uh, products that we need and the way that you go about, you know, maintaining our, our hair, our skin, etc. Certain products, uh, food, you know, that's associated with us culturally, different other sort of products. But, you know, so we really wanted to expand that out to also understand that it's also about play, the business itself and the fact that it, it welcomes people. It's a place where you can go and know that you're not going to be necessarily profiled and followed around, you know that you know people that are there, that you're going to meet your friends there. No one's going to say, hey, you can't hang around here. You know what I mean? Wow, sure, sure, sure. The relationships we found out are also very important, and we learned that from the data. You know, this isn't us making things up. This is us talking with the business owners and talking with the owner of Capital Lounge and Avenue Bakery and, and different other bakeries and where business owners are like, yeah, you know, I have young kids come over here. They help me. Uh, or my staff, I know what's going on with my staff, how their health is, how their family members are. So, you know, when you have relationships with staff and with community, that's also significant. And then finally, um, symbolism. We found that just all those factors together, if you put all of it in a historical context, symbolism really matters. Symbolism resonates. We as black people, you know, with our struggle, we look to some businesses as a representation of someone having made it. And that's significant for us as well, you know. So there are lots of layers to that whole cultural significance piece. That That's fabulous. But one thing I want to add to that is that within the realm of the historic black communities in D.C. and Baltimore, and I know this is the same for other urban centers across America back in the day, you did have a sense of community because of segregation, because of Jim Crow, because of redlining, because of lack of access to capital, because of racial profiling, you name it. In today's black communities, you really don't have the sense of community. Um, yeah. And so I think you can't overlook the fact that today, a business owner in the black community doesn't really know some of the youngsters because of the various complexities of issues that are facing us in present day. Whereas what you were talking about earlier, in an earlier time, let's just say pre-World War II or even post-World War II, in the black community, more than likely the owners went to the same schools that the current students that they're trying to hire or potential customers are. They went to the same church. They may have lived in the community. So if you look at communities today, the historic black churches, the pastor, the congregants don't really live in the community anymore. And all these factors come into play to hurt a black business 
within a black community. Or, 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 go ahead. Yes, I think you're completely right. And that's a part of the context that you can't ignore. And gentrification is a part of the larger context. So, yeah, we definitely observe that. I mean, we observe shifts. You know, we observe gentrification as a pressure point impacting the business and their clientele and their sense of belonging as well. And then we talked to the owner of Red Funeral Services, and he was in Sandtown, and then he ended up moving over to Bolton Hill area. And, you know, one of the things that he was saying was, you know, he belonged to a church that was in Sandtown. Mm-hmm. And they would do community work and all kinds of stuff. So he had a very strong connection and still does, but they moved their business out of that community, though. Ren, what did that tell you? Well, you know, I guess it tells me a lot of things. It does. Just, <laughs> his words at face value initially, he attributed to, you know, the impact of uh, the uprisings around Freddie Gray and the fact that the clientele didn't feel safe, you know, coming there any longer. So he would, they were really trying to meet the needs of their, you know, clients people that were going to be using their service and to be fair to the freddie gray uprising of 2015 the community was in a downward spiral before that jumped off so this has been building i've been documenting this scenario for for many a year and i spoke at a 40th anniversary of the rights of 68 race and rebirth at university of baltimore i was one of the few black presenters at this conference and i looked at the impact of <laughs> the assassination of Martin Luther King and the rise of 68 on the black community. And I looked at it through the lens of never before interviewed sources. So we did a, a 10 minute interview film of various people that I could pluck from the community that would be willing to sign a authorization release form and talk in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. And their stories did not appear in the News American, the Baltimore Sun, the Afro, or any other radio station. So it was fresh content, again, that FTM, fresh to the market, that I like to talk about. The one thing that was really prevalent in all of that was that the black community never recovered from what the blacks did to black businesses within their own community. Mm-hmm. And how people want to just say, okay, Freddie Gray is the jumping off point because it's front and center. But in Baltimore, there were several factors that play into the disinvestment of Old West Baltimore. And Freddie Gray is just like the icing on the cake or the cherry that you put on top of a a piece of pie because you're looking at decades of disinvestment, racial inequality, lack of capital, crooked development deals, gentrification, and really Brown v. Board. The community never recovered from Brown v. Board going through because it stripped the best teachers. It stripped the best homeowners and renters that now decided that they could go and move into other areas. So you have a void. So, you're right. Jad, you want to add anything to that? Yes, I, I don't really have much to add to that. I think you really nailed it down on that. But for the visualization itself, we tried to actually keep the uh, keep the businesses as uh, with the message saying that they really, really built themselves out of these structures and still managed to flourish within these circumstances. And I did want to add the context of Freddie Gray into the visualizations. And I felt like, I felt like it would take away mostly from the businesses and their stories. And mostly I wanted to emphasize them and how they triumphed through the pandemic, really, rather than detail too much of the history and, and get too tied into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess what I would add is that what you're again talking about is the complexity and the multi-layered 
factors that are there, right? You can never boil everything down to one thing. But what I find interesting is that when we're having conversations, there, there's a cadre of people who conclude that segregation should have maintained. Right, right. Yes, yes. You know, because yes, yes. I, I mean, that's American apartheid. So it's no reason why that needed to stay in place. I think what would be interesting is if we could have envisioned and realized a different outcome where, you know, instead of all this out-migration where as soon as black people have the opportunity, you know, there was harm done to our businesses because we began to, you know, patronize other businesses, etc. I think something could have happened. That would have been in a moment for the implementation of policies that would have helped those businesses. Right, right, right yes. Desire, if there was true equity, that's what have, should have happened at that moment. Not that segregation should have stayed in place. I just can't, you know, that's just absurd. But we certainly could have had, you know, an influx of resources. We could have had training opportunities. You know, we could have been open and honest about the damage that has been done to African Americans historically, emotionally, and psychologically by segregation. You know? We could have had some of those conversations because that's really a part of what people were responding to by embracing whiteness, you know, in that moment and perhaps embracing businesses that were much better capitalized than black businesses were. So, you know, I think that's a conversation that I don't hear enough of. I usually just hear either two camps. There's one camp saying that we should have never, you know, segregation, it was so much better than, you know, than it was now in terms of black businesses that, you know, or of course we should have had desegregation, but what about somewhere in the middle where we could have envisioned other sorts of outcomes? You and know? and I, I like that. And I think that in itself is a subset of a project because you now have my head spinning and thinking about those key words that you just dropped on us. And if you think about it, post Brown v. Board in 54, there were not a lot of policies that helped the black community. Right. And there weren't a lot of black politicians. See, that's the, that's the other thing. In Baltimore, in 1955, Walter Dixon, by the way, who was the dean of the Cortez Peters Business School, also was a city councilman. He broke the color line. There had been 24 years of no Negro representation at City Hall in Baltimore. So Walter Dixon, even though he was backed by a well-connected Jewish machine, an interracial machine, he broke the color line of almost a quarter of a century. So when you're talking about policy, talking about access to capital, talking about technical assistance, talking about leadership and direction, you ultimately have to look at the political climate and figure out what is going on. And then the other part that I briefly want to talk about Within the interpretation of black businesses or, or just entrepreneurism across the country, it may take three or four generations of a black business to be created and less than one to destroy it. Okay. And so when you talk about how you look at some of these businesses that have been going on for generations, and then you say, well, wait a minute, where are the black businesses? Well, they had a harder time surviving and not only surviving, but then passing that wealth on or that entity on to the next generation. That is why it was so difficult in Baltimore for us to find for you in the Old West Baltimore corridor, a business that had been going on for multiple generations. 
I could take you to East Baltimore and find it, but I could not find it in West Baltimore because of various issues, some of which is what you talked about so eloquently in your words. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, that fascinates me. And I wonder what other factors are at play there. For example, are people maybe their children are getting college educated and then going on to other occupations? I mean, that's a part of that's a big part of it. That would be an upwardly mobile track. I guess there would also be a downward mobile story to some of these business owners as well. But in terms of the upwardly mobile part, yeah, you think that that could be a factor? Oh, oh, no, no doubt. I've I've seen it. Yes. And. In today's world, there's so many more opportunities for the offspring of entrepreneurs to go off and do something different. Completely, and I'm completely supportive of that. And I really want to use that moment to just this moment to shout out my daughters because that's the exact spirit that they have. Right. It's, it's the spirit of this moment. Right. You know, my eldest child, God bless her, she has an undergraduate degree in French and anthropology. Then she went off to London and got a master's degree in urban affairs and human geography. She worked for a year at the Center for Economic Policy and Research, and now she's like, you know what? She's 29, and she's realizing, I don't have to work for someone else. My brain is my intellectual you know, engine, and I can take that you know, just to places that no one has even imagined. Right. So she's working with people in Georgia on a southern farmland. She's working with some prison abolition stuff on another front. She's doing environmental justice on another. You know, there's a lot to fight for. Right, know, right? But, but see, you just supported what I'm talking about as to one of the factors that show the difficulty of historic black businesses being passed on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. One other key part is the lack of access to business skills and, uh, and and protocol and so forth where some misappropriation of funds have taken place. So in some cases, we were our own worst enemy because we were living high on the hog, so to speak, as opposed to reinvesting the money into the business, into the land, into equipment, into educational attainment and so forth. So we can't look just outside of the house or the community as to why our businesses were not able to be passed on to the, the second and third generations. Let's add another factor, the vulnerability of the community that they're serving. Right. Critical, critical. critical. That, oh, really? oh my goodness, that's the home run. You, you just hit a grand slam. <laughs> you knocked it out of the park, baby. You did. That's it. Yeah. 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 That's going to be another factor. Again, context, context, context. If we aren't doing well, how are we supposed to support a business? Right. Well, and... and together right well and as as i wrap this up not only thrive together but you 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 gotta know that there's a certain amount of self-hate within our community toward us so many of us don't like us don't love themselves and therefore again i'm going to drink the kool-aid and say that the other man's ice is cheaper colder and better than going over here to bob johnson who's i've known his family for 35 years and look just and look just like me this is true. So, on that note, Jad, do you have anything that you'd like to add before we... I'm just really, really glad that you guys invited me on. I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me. No, we're very grateful to the career path that you've chosen and that 
Sabir was able to meet you and bring you to the table or vice versa. And we're big fans of of your work. Uh, that was our seven-month-old daughter sitting here as well, making noise. And taking, again, the time on your vacation day to be a part of this conversation. And Sabia, as usual, I always enjoy talking to you about the plethora of issues that we discuss. I just want to say this. I think the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree because your daughter can see that her own mother is branching out and doing her own thing from an entrepreneurial perspective that then can kind of lift her spirits up to say, well, I'm just doing what mommy's doing. And so often we don't have the role models within our own house to give us that kind of extra push or motivation or desire or nurture ring that we need to to be that bird and go out and fly even if we may fall and stumble. So, you, you know, what you're doing right now is really important on multiple levels for the rest of the world, but for you, but also for your daughter and for other young women that are trying to find their way. Yes, indeed. You know, and again, context, context, right? Right, you know, right, right. Because of what happened, you know, at the university where I was a professor. So that really put me on this path. So, you know, I'm happy to be able to also spare perhaps my children some of the indignities that I've had to experience. You exactly. Know, they can learn from those and maybe kind of avoid some things and, and be their own person and just be leaders and not have to be bothered with some of the crazy things that I've had to put up with in the it, course of my career. It, exactly. I think that's a wonderful way to close this out. So I'd like to thank both of you for taking this important time to share with us. Indeed. Well, thank you both for having us. And Peace and blessings. Thank both of you. Take care. Bye-bye.